You'll be taking out your Bibles and turning to the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms, we'll be looking at Psalm 1 this evening. The book of Psalms is a book in which we can find a psalm for just about every situation that can arise. In fact, the book is very practical. If you buy a New Testament, most New Testaments will come with two Old Testament books at the end, like the one I have here. And it's the New Testament including Psalms and Proverbs, because those two books teach us such great lessons. If somebody in need of comfort, they should read Psalm 23. We often read Psalm 23 at funerals because it brings us great comfort. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. Won't. Maybe somebody says they feel the wicked is prospering around them, and here they are trying to serve God, and things aren't going as well for them as they are for the wicked, and they're really beginning to question, is serving God worth it? Look at Psalm 73. Maybe somebody feels sorely distressed. They feel like everything's going against them. They consider giving up. They should read Psalm 55 because that's how David felt there. Does somebody want to read about the Word of God? Turn to the 119th Psalm. We remember that, the 119th Psalm, for being the longest chapter in all the Bible. It's a great chapter on the Word of God. Does somebody want to read about Messianic Psalms or prophecies? Read Psalms like Psalm 110. It's a messianic prophecy given there in the 110th Psalm. There are psalms for every situation. And so for this reason, the psalms are something we should regularly study. The psalms, I think, are something that that we should regularly study, but maybe something we don't realize just how much value there is in studying the psalms. Book of Psalms is divided into five books itself. Within this one book, it divides into five. Book one is one through forty-one. Book two is forty-two through seventy-two. Book three is seventy-three through eighty-nine. Book four is ninety through one hundred six, and book five is one hundred seven through one hundred and fifty. These 150 Psalms, and again, like we know, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. We remember the book of Psalms mostly for the fact that it's the longest book in the Bible. If you open up your Bible, odds are you're going to open up and hit one of two books, either Psalms or Isaiah at some point while flipping through. And that's what we remember Psalms for, is this length. But the Psalms really focus on two main themes. The Psalms focus a lot on the relationship between man and the law. They're under the old law he's dealing with there, but the relationship that man is to have with the law. And it deals with messianic prophecies. And the relationship to the law and the prophecies are the two key central points in the Old Old Testament. The passages, when you read through, are often about the man's relationship to the law or it's a messianic prophecy that is given. And that's what the Psalms are focusing on. Now, Psalms 1 and 2, as way of introduction, Psalm 1 and 2, it was Scroggy said of them, the first two Psalms, which are anonymous, provide an introduction to the whole Psalter, the hymn book of the Hebrews. The first treats of the law and the second of prophecy, and these are the foci around which the whole of the Old Testament moves as it is an ellipse. 
that both psalms are from the same hand seems, same hand seems to be indicated by the occurrence in each of certain words such as blessed in one one and two twelve, and meditate in Psalm one verse two and in two one, and perish in one six and two twelve. Here's what Leopold said. The book of Psalms opens up with two psalms without headings. Judging from their general character, it would appear that they were prefixed to the book with a specific purpose of emphasizing certain fundamentals that are of importance in approaching this book. It is plain to those who read the Old Testament Scripture that law and prophecy are fundamental to the spiritual life of Israel. One is the basis, the other is the essential superstructure. One lays the foundation, the other builds on what is thus laid. The first two Psalms touch respectively on these two points, emphasizing what the essential attitude on both issues ought to be. Psalm 1 can rightly be said to exemplify the proper attitude toward the law of the Lord. Psalm 2, as it were, gives the essence of prophecy and indicates what place it plays in the life of, of of the true Israel. He who has grasped these two issues aright is well on the way that leads to a right reading of the Psalter. That was Leopold who said that. So, tonight we're going to study Psalm 1. I issue a challenge to you. Psalms, again, are something we should read regularly. We should try to study the Psalms every day because there's such great wisdom we can learn from them. So I issue a challenge to you to try and read a psalm every day. Maybe you read Psalm 1, 2, 3, and you move on in order. Maybe you read the same psalm several days and see what you can learn. But as part of that, tonight we're going to study Psalm 1. And next Sunday night, Lord willing, we're going to study Psalm 2, these two introductory psalms to get the basis of what the book of Psalms is all about. So Psalm 1. The psalm itself serves as an introduction to the entire book. This is about the contrast of the righteous and of the unrighteous. And so it's important for us to understand this righteousness versus unrighteousness, this contrast given here. So let's study Psalm 1 and understand the contrast of the righteous and the unrighteous. So as this contrast is given, the psalmist begins, and we'll talk about the text, and then we'll shift later on and list some practical lessons we learn from this text. But as the psalmist begins, he begins by describing the righteous. We'll read the psalm, and then we will go through and break it down further. Psalm 1 and in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment." nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's talk about this first division. Verses 1 through 3 is a description of the righteous man. This man that in verse 1, it is said that he is blessed. But it's interesting here, this man is described in three ways. Number one, he is described negatively. 
That is, he's described in verse 1 by here is what the man does not do. Look at verse 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So verse 1 is negatively describing this man. So you see, as you read this description, this negative description of this man, there are three key things that are listed here. He does not walk with the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked. He does not stand in the paths of sinners, and he does not sit in the seat of the scornful. You see, this righteous man, this man who's a faithful servant of God, is somebody who does not make his association with those of this world. He's not somebody that's making his close friends, those he associates with, those he's around, those of this world. He doesn't sit with the scornful. He doesn't stand in the paths of sinners. He doesn't even walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You think about that for just a second. What verse 1 is showing here is a progression. And, and when we get to the end and we'll talk about this practical lesson, we'll talk about this progression in more detail. But notice the man in verse 1, what he does not do is he does not walk nor stand nor sit among those that are doing what is wrong. You see, oftentimes there are those that would not sit with the seat of the scornful, That is, they would say, I'm not fixed among those that are unrighteous or even stand there. See, the man that's standing there, here's the difference where we're standing and sitting. The man that's standing there is is sort of fixed there, but he could leave. The man that's sitting there among the, the scornful, among those doing what is wrong, is getting comfortable with it. But this man doesn't only not sit with them, nor does he stand with them. He doesn't even walk in their counsel. This man is somebody that is avoiding... The unrighteous. Not in the sense that he's not ever around them, that we, we can't help but be around those who will do what is wrong from time to time. Remember in 1 Corinthians, we were going through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that Paul points out that I wrote to you not to, to associate with the sexually immoral, but he says not the sexually immoral of this world, but he's talking about those that are, that are brethren, because we'd have to go out of the world. That is, we have to be around those of the world that are doing things. That are wrong. You're going to find it hard to go to the store or to do anything or to work when you're not around somebody that's not, that, that's not doing what's right. We're going to be around those people. But it's not saying he's not ever around them. You go to the marketplace, there may be somebody there. But this is not somebody that makes them his association. These are not his companions. Well, he's not somebody that sits there and says that here's my close friend, and when you see his close friends, his friends are people that are in immoral, partaking in immoral deeds or doing things that ought not to be done. You see, this godly man does not associate with people like that. He doesn't have anything to do with them. If he is associating with those that are ungodly or sinners or scornful as described in verse 1, then he's eventually going to be influenced by it. So you see, when we're reading through Psalm 1, however short it may be, and we read verse 1, it's easy to read verse 1 and see that blessed is this man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sin in the seat of the scornful. But there's so much there in that one verse alone that we could learn about the fact that we don't need to be associating with those of the world because ultimately they're going to influence us. And the righteous man does not have them as his close companions. So he's negatively described here in verse 1. 
negatively described as the man who does not associate with the unrighteous. But look at verse 2. In verse 2, the man, this righteous man is positively described. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Two things here that we need to see. Number one, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Verse 2 is very important for us to understand when it comes to our study of Scriptures and how we view them. At times it is easy, if we are not careful, to view our reading of the Scriptures as a mere exercise of the mind. What I mean by that is, is we'll get out our Bibles and we'll open up to whatever our reading is for the day and we'll read through it because we feel we have to read through it. We'll talk about the meditation part in a second, but I want us to see this first thing here, the first part of that verse first, is it is His delight. You see, when we're beginning to view it as sort, when we can easily begin to view our Bible reading as if it's something to do on a checklist, here are the things I need to do for the day. I need to do my Bible reading. Check. But on that same list it may say that I need to take the car and get the oil changed today. Check. Alright, make sure to put the trash by the road before they pick it up in the morning. Check. And you see, early on we may read that and not have that affect us, but when you, when we view it as if it's just something to be done, then our, we, we can eventually start to just view it as anything else. We no longer view it as a study of the Word of God and hearing what God has to say to us, but it's simply just a reading. Just like if I went to the shelf, my shelf and took off a book and opened it up and just read about something secular, whether it's a history book or a fiction book or whatever the book may be, if I just take it off my shelf and read it just for the sake of reading it, that that's how we can easily view the reading of the Scriptures. But this righteous man in this text, is it is his delight. He finds great joy in reading in the study of God's Word. He doesn't view it as if, here's God's Word, I'm going to read it because I need to mark it off my checklist. But it's somebody whose delight is in it. He finds great joy from it. This passage is talking about worship, but another psalmist, where the psalmist talks about later on in the book of Psalms, where, you know, that I was glad when they said in the middle, just go into the house of the Lord. You're having the proper view of worship, viewing it as something to be glad for. Well, the man of Psalm 1 views the reading of the Scriptures that way. He views the reading of Scriptures as something to be of great joy because he delights in God's law. But he doesn't, but the reason the man delights in it, and this is important, the reason the man delights in the law of the Lord is because the man understands what the law does for him. You see, if we just read the Bible, when we begin to read the Bible, rather, as if it's just sort of an exercise of our mind like reading anything else, we read it for the sake of reading it, is often because we forget about how important it is to us. And that is, we forget that what we're learning and what the reading of the Scriptures does for us. You see, when we understand that the reading of the Scriptures, this is how I learned what I need to do to be saved. 
that in the reading of the Scriptures, this is how I learn how I need to live. Then when I understand what the Scriptures do for me, and I keep that before me, then reading it brings me to light. Just like the man of Psalm 1. But it's important here in verse 2 that he doesn't just delight in it, but he meditates on it. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Reminded in the passages in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 6, where Moses is telling them there about how they need to, to keep it always before them. Remember in Deuteronomy where Moses is telling them about keeping, keeping it before them? Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy 6, and in the beginning at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is a passage well familiar to all of us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, verse 7, and shall talk of them, listen, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You see, the man of Psalm 1 is somebody that understands that. Understands the principle of Deuteronomy chapter 6, that it's before him. And in the teaching of this man's children, he's going to keep that before them. He's going to talk about it when they walk by the way, when they lie down, when they rise up. It'll be as a sign on his hand, his frontless between his eyes, the doorpost of his house. He's not literally saying they're right out of Scripture, posted on above your door, but keep it always before you. One of the reasons, too, we can lose delight in our Bible reading can become can just become sheer repetition, is because we read it, but we don't meditate on it. We need to read the Scriptures, but we need to ponder what we on what we just read. You see, I could open up to this text, to the same text we're discussing this evening, and we could read it and see that blessed is the man who walks not in the council of God, who stands in the path of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful, and all the way through the end, and then move on. And that's the, and what I've just done is I've just read. And that's what we think about when it comes to studying God's Word is that's what we need to do is we need to just read through. But part of study is the meditation on it. And what I need to do is take what I have read and keep it in my mind and be thinking about it all day long. You notice this man meditates on it day and night. So let's say you get up in the morning before you go to work and you read your Bible reading. We'll just take as the way of illustration this psalm that we're discussing this evening. And you read Psalm 1. As you're driving on your way to work, you can ponder on what it is. What does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? What is it that it means to meditate on His law? You know, Think about what it talks about as the illustration of a tree in verse 3. Think about the, the Lord knowing the way of the righteous. Think about all these things this, this psalm talks about. And you can think about those things throughout the day. It's not just a reading of them. You keep them before you and you think about them. 
You read a passage in the New Testament and you read what it says to do and then you think about the passage, but you think about what you need to do to apply that to yourself. Think about what you need to do to make sure that you're living that principle better than you were yesterday. You see, meditation is not something... I think we view meditation because of how you see it on TV shows like we're sitting around with our legs crossed and our hands out with our eyes closed and we're just sitting there thinking about whatever it is and that's what meditation is. But but this meditation is much more than that. It's something that's constant. You know, when you're lying in bed at night, as you lie there, you can think about what you read that day. How do I need to make application of this? Think about what you read that morning. If you read your Bible in the morning, and think about how did I make application of what I read this morning today, and what could I do to make better application of that principle tomorrow? You see, what you're doing there is you're meditating on God's law. Just like the righteous man of Psalm 1. So the righteous man has been negatively described in verse 1. He's been positively described in verse 2. But in verse 3, he's going to be consequently described. That is, here's what happens. Look at verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Brings forth his fruit in the season, whose leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Look at number one. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. This becomes all the more important in a moment when we get to verse 4 and the, the wicked man is going to be compared to the chaff. But here in verse 3, we have this righteous man described as a tree. What's important and significant about the righteous man being a tree is a tree is not easily moved. A tree will stand firm. So when we see in a second the, the, the chaff in verse 4, the ungodly man, that the wind drives away... This tree of verse 3 is the opposite. It's firm. But it's significant that the tree, not only is it a tree that is firm, it's significant where the tree is, and the tree is planted by the rivers of water. You see, if you have a tree, but it's not near a water source, then if you have a drought or anything, that tree is easily going to dry and shrivel up. But the tree that the righteous man is, is planted by the rivers of water. It's interesting that he's planted by rivers of water because ultimately what is going to feed us and water us spiritually is the law that he delights in and meditates in in verse 2. You see, this is important. If the man of verses 1 through 3 which doing verse 2, then verse 1 and verse 3 will no longer hold true. Think about that for a second. If he quits doing verse 2, that is delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord, then verse 1 and verse 3 will no longer hold true. Because once we stop studying God's Word, we're no longer going to be firm like the tree. You see, the tree is planted by the waters because it has a constant source. So if I'm spending my time in the study of God's Word, and I'm meditating on it, and I'm being what I need to be in study of it, then I'm by the rivers of water. But if I cut off verse 2, that river of water is going to go away. You see, the illustrations used in Scripture and talked about in Scripture, about remember Jesus talks about the sheep, that they can't be taken away. Nobody, nobody can 
take this tree of verse 3 and cut it down. You see, you could go cut a tree down outside, but the tree of verse 3 that's planted by the rivers of water cannot be cut down by somebody. The only thing that's going to take that tree down is the tree itself. And that's because they're the one that can cut off the water supply to the tree. And so that's why verse 2 is important because we want to be the tree of verse 3 that's planted by the rivers of water. But not only is it planted by rivers of water, it is a fruitful tree. You know, when you read in Scriptures, as you go through and it talks about bearing fruit, you think about Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. When you talk about bearing fruit and good fruit, the man that is meditating on the law of God, the man that is not associating with the wicked, he's a tree that is bringing forth fruit. When we're spending the time in God's law as well to in verse 2, we can't help but be fruitful in verse 3. Because we're doing what we need to do in our study, we will be fruitful. We will bear fruit. He points out as well that the leaf shall not wither. The tree's not going to die. The tree's going to continue on. And whatever he does, verse 3, shall prosper. You see, the righteous man here is a tree that's planted by rivers of water, He's immovable. He's got a constant supply. And so because of that, he will prosper and bring forth fruit and his leaf shall not wither. And the reason for that is because this man does not associate with the ungodly and this man meditates on God's law. That is how this man can be described as a tree that is firmly planted in verse 3. But verse 4, verse 4 and verse 5 deal with the unrighteous man. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 describes him as being chaff. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You see, he's the opposite of the righteous man. The ungodly are not so. Now, what he's talking about in verse 4 has direct application to verse 3 in that he compares the chaff to the tree. The tree's not blown by the wind, the tree's not moved by the wind, but the chaff can be tossed back and forth by the wind. But we need to know something significant here. Because we saw that in verses 1 through 3, the righteous man was negatively described, positively described, and consequently described. But if you look at this unrighteous man in verses 4 and 5, he is only consequently described. Because we already know his character from this phrase, the ungodly are not so. You see, the righteous man does not associate with the wicked, but the ungodly are not so. They associate with others that are doing what is wrong. The righteous man meditates in and delights on, delights in and meditates on God's word, but the unrighteous are not so. So what we've just done is when we've read the righteous man, we know that the opposite of that is the unrighteous man of this text. So with this, then now all we need to deal with is here's the consequences of the unrighteous. You see, so we already know his description because he is a man that walks in the counsel of the ungodly. He stands in the paths of sinners and he sits in the seat of the scornful. He does not delight in the law of the Lord and he does not meditate on his law day and night. Therefore, he is a shaft which the wind drives away. 
You see, the tree has a fir- is firmly rooted in verse 3 because it has a faith in God's Word, so it has a deep root taking place. But the shaft is tossed to and fro because it has no roots. So when you take those that are ungodly, those that don't do the will of God, those that don't study His law, they can go wherever they feel like because they have no deep root. So if something comes along that catches the eye of one doing what's wrong, they'll go this way. Until something else catches their eye over here and now they're over there. And then something flashier comes along and they'll move again. Because there's no deep root for the unrighteous. They're tossed back and forth. They're driven by the wind. But I want us to focus on verse 5 for just a second. He says in verse 4 that they're the opposite of the righteous and tossed by the wind. But notice this, verse 5a, they shall not stand in judgment. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Now he's not saying in verse 5 the ungodly aren't going to give an account. That would contradict what we learn in the New Testament. What he's saying in verse 5 is they will not stand the test. Think about Amos 7. We want to turn there to Amos 7, verses 7 and 8. Amos 7, 7 and 8. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And, he, and I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am sending a plumb line in the midst of the people of Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. See, what's happening here is Israel is not passing a test in Amos 7. We need to understand something. The man of Psalm 1.5a, the unrighteous man or the ungodly man, will not stand the test in judgment. So when this man stands to give an account, we're going to give an account for how we've lived. And remember what Jesus said in John chapter 12, that His words would judge us in the last day. And so we take the words that are recorded there and we see how it is we need to live. And we take the way that this unrighteous man lived and they don't add up. You think for just a second, as you take a test in school, you're given a piece of paper and you answer some questions, right? And then you turn it in and the teacher has an answer key. Here's what the correct answer is. Here is your answers. And so this answer was correct. This answer was correct. This answer was incorrect because it doesn't match up with this answer key over here. We see in the judgment day, when they give an account, here are the deeds of the ungodly and here's what the the answer key, if you will, is. Here's what God's Word says. Now here's something that's different. In school, you could pass and miss some questions. That is, you could have a test and you could get 9 out of 10 correct and you pass with an A. In the judgment day, if you fail in any one aspect, you have failed the test. Think about that for a second though. The unrighteous man that's described here is somebody that associates with the wicked and doesn't focus on God's laws and needs to and all this. But the difference overall is we could look at ourselves and say, I'm doing these things right, but ultimately when we go to give an account, we could be the ungodly, though we may not do all the things that He does. Oh, I read God's law, but we may not be living it in this one area. Oh, I don't associate with the wicked, but over here I've failed to meet this command of God. Maybe I failed to meet the command of love. Maybe I failed to meet the command to forgive. 
Whatever it is, the, the difference in a test in school and in the judgment day when we stand in test is we can't miss any answers. That is, we must live like the Bible tells us to live. And because the ungodly man does not live, he doesn't stand the test. He fails the test. He will not pass in the day of judgment. But the righteous man that we've seen is the opposite of that. He will pass the test. Think about it again for the second. When he says the ungodly are not so, he's contrasting the ungodly to the righteous man, not just in how the results, but the ungodly man does the things that the righteous man, or the, the ungodly man does the things the righteous man does not, and does not do the things that the righteous man does. But when it comes to the account that's going to be given, the righteous man result is the opposite of the ungodly man. So you see, the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, but the righteous man of one through three, he will stand and pass the test in the day of judgment. Look at verse 5b. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is not talking about the congregation now, in that there won't be those that may be in sin that are among, that are trying to be among those who are doing what is right, but it's ultimately making the point of heaven. I like what Leopold said on this verse. He said, parallel with this runs, uh, with this runs the statement that the sinner shall not be able to maintain themselves in the congregation of the righteous. This brings another angle of the case into the picture. The sinners are therefore not to be thought of only as such who grind the ordinary standards of decency under their heel and live in flagrant shame and vice, but it would almost seem they are more frequently to be sought among men who try to maintain their place in the congregation of the righteous. They are the group known as hypocrites. So strange are the manifold aspects of the wick of wickedness. But when the true congregation of the righteous is at the last established in the final judgment, of this also Ezekiel thirty four ten through twenty four and Joel two thirty two speak, then the purge of the judgment will listen will have removed these pretenders, and not a wicked one will be left in the assembly. Matthew 13, 36 through 43, and 47 through 50 describe this form from the New Testament point of view. So you think about that for just a second. In the end, there may be those, we talk about the test and how we can't fail in any aspect. There may be those that we think are doing what is right, that are trying to associate. The, the ones that he describes here, you know, these are the hypocrites, these are pretenders. That in the end, if they fail the test in any aspect, then they will be out of the congregation of the righteous. Anyone, anyone who fails the test of the first part of verse 5 is out of the congregation from the second half of verse 5. Anyone who fails to pass the test. And so what he's describing in 5a and b here, 5a describes that he won't pass his test. 5b is the result is he's not in the congregation of the righteous. Look at verse 6 for just a moment with me. Verse 6 is the way of both. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, 6a, but the wicked shall perish. See, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way that they're living. I'm reminded of the passage in the book of 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy rather, 2 Timothy chapter 2. When in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. Listen. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from 
iniquity. God knows those who are His. You know, there are times in the world today where something could be gotten wrong. Or sometimes you may see on the news or something about a, somebody got sentenced for a crime they didn't commit. There was a, there was a misexecution of judgment handed down. They thought this person was guilty. They thought the evidence led that way. They were convicted. They were, they were sentenced. And then it was found out later on they may have been innocent. Or maybe somebody's found innocent. We've seen these cases as well. And later on it's found out they were guilty. But we need to understand this. That's not going to happen in the final judgment. God's not going to make a mistake. He knows the way of the righteous. He knows those who are His. And so when we stand in judgment, we don't have to worry, I wonder if He's going to get my sentence right. I wonder if He's going to know all the things that I've done for Him. I hope He doesn't get it wrong. Because the Lord won't get it wrong. And at the same time, there are those who may be pretending of verse 5 that are ultimately the ungodly because they haven't lived as they should. They won't deceive God and get in. They shall perish. God's not going to make a mistake in the final judgment. That's what verse 6 is showing us. This is the ultimate end result of their way. The way is known in verse six, in the first half of verse 6. The way of the righteous is known. And the way of the wicked is the way that will perish. And there'll be no mistake. There will be no mistake in the day of judgment. But the sentence will be handed down as the sentence should be handed down. It won't be like a human court where there could be a mistake that is made. That's Psalm 1. We saw the righteous, negatively described, positively described, and consequently described. We saw the, the ungodly man, or the, the unrighteous man. He's a man like chaff that won't stand in the, day of, stay in the test in the day of judgment, and he'll be cast out from the congregation of the righteous. And we saw the way of both. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's do some practical lessons we learned from Psalm 1 before we conclude this evening. Number one, number one, I learned of the progression of unrighteousness. Again, verse 1. If you notice in verse 1, there are three very important words. We talked about this earlier. There's walk, there's stand, and there is sit. There are those that may walk with the ungodly. That is, they go that way from time to time, but they wouldn't be those that would be there all the time. And so, they would say, no, I don't do that. But they may, from time to time, go over there and be with those that are ungodly. They're walking with them. They may eventually be more firm there. They're standing there. They don't walk for a little bit and leave, but they're standing there. But ultimately, those that are ungodly, if they don't take care of that quickly, will be sitting there. Walking was something where you come in and out. Standing is something where you're ready to leave. Sitting is something where you get comfortable. And the longer somebody is in sin, the more comfortable they become. I'm reminded of Lot. When the book of Genesis is him and him and Abraham go their separate ways, Lot cast his or pitches his tent towards Sodom. Notice that he pitches his tent towards Sodom. He's not in Sodom yet. That's Genesis 13. In Genesis 14, people of Sodom and Gomorrah are taken captive. And Abraham goes to rescue who? But Lot, who's now dwelling in Sodom. 
And in chapter 19, he's told he has to flee because Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. You know, he pitched his tent towards there. That is, he was walking. And then he was standing. And then eventually he was sitting. When he moved in, he was standing there. But when he began to become more comfortable with it, Yes, it tormented him what he saw, but ultimately this man was willing to give his daughters for the two strangers he had in his house. He was beginning to sit. We see the progression of the unrighteous. We see again, and we talked about this in in detail earlier, so we'll we'll move on rather quickly, but we see that we should meditate on God's Word. It's not just simply a, a reading of it that is enough, but we think about it. How can I take this and make application in my life? And that's something that needs to be on our mind constantly. Something we're always thinking about. Meditating on God's Word both day and night. Verse 3, the unrighteous are immovable. I'm reminded of, uh, of Psalm 15. When in Psalm 15, Donnie stood, preached on Psalm 15 about a couple of months ago or so. We talked about Psalm 15 and those that dwell with God. And when that psalm concluded with that he who does these things, the things that are listed above about those who can dwell with God, shall not be moved. We're seeing the same thing here. They're a tree. They're not moved. You know something? You can cut down a tree. But you don't move a tree. You don't just pick it up and move it somewhere else. Trees are firmly planted. The righteous aren't moved. The only way the righteous are leaving is if they choose to leave. But nobody's going to move them. There may be those that may steer them in a wrong direction, but ultimately it's their choice as to whether they move or not. We see in verse 4, the unrighteous are the opposite. They're tossed about. Because they have no root, they'll go wherever they see is best for them. And they'll be tossed about like the chaff that's driven by the wind. We see the fate of the unrighteous. They'll not stand the test. They'll not be in the congregation of the righteous and their way shall ultimately perish. We can take comfort in this. Verse 6, and this is something we need to remember, the Lord knows the way of His servants. Those that are righteous, those that serve God, God knows their way. We can take comfort in that. Because again, in the day of judgment, there will be no mistake. The sentence we are given is the sentence that we deserve. That's Psalm 1. The contrast of the righteous and the unrighteous. I encourage you before next week to study Psalm 2, as we'll be looking at the second Psalm next Sunday evening, Lord willing. It may be that there are one or more present this evening who have never responded in obedience to the gospel. If you're here and you've not done that, now is the time to obey. You're not guaranteed of another opportunity, for what is our life but a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away? Or who do we know but the Lord may come back? Because of that day and of that hour, no one knows. So if you've heard the Word of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you should not repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be buried in the waters of baptism. And you can take comfort knowing the Lord will know the way that you have lived. And if you serve Him faithfully to the end and do the things that we talked about this evening, you will not perish. Maybe you're here and you've obeyed the Gospel, but you say somewhere along the line, I've not lived as I should. That if I was to give an account right now, I would not pass the test. Then make correction of that. If it's of a private nature, take it to God privately in prayer. But if of a public nature, we'll pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. 
No matter this evening, no matter what your need is, if we can assist you in any way, would you not come forward as together we stand and as we sing?